So there's a person that lives near me that is close enough that I can hear them mowing their lawn, but far enough that I have no clue where the lawn is. Okay. Just, I haven't had a yard or a patch of land, uh, uh, an estate in so long (laughs) that I'm just sitting here going, that ratcheted up. What are you doing? (laughs) It's hot. Let it grow wild. I, I'm with you. I don't mow my lawn. Someone does it for me. I know it's Tuesday, not because a Willing and Fable episode is dropped every Tuesday, <laughs> but because Tuesday morning, someone comes around and mows all the lawns. You should, like, leave that person cake. Like, just a whole entire birthday cake and just be like, it's not your birthday. A, a, a whole cake sitting in the sun with just yeah. a little for you sign in front of it. Right. It's twice baked cake. If that person is a murderino, they're like, oh, God, they're trying to kill me. <laughs> I think if that person's a person, they're going to be like, oh, God, they're trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> just let Malcolm go out. He loves to eat grass. He's a dog, right? Just let him trim it they throw blade up. by blade. When they eat grass, they throw up. Yo, can you tell I've never owned a dog? That's why they eat grass. It creates a basoar. I think that's how you say it. What? In their stomach. It basically just makes... No, don't. Don't talk about gross stuff. It's gross, isn't it? It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so instead, call my mom. My mom will bring our horse over and she will mow your lawn. Perfect. I love that. There's a scene in, in Hercules, right? Where they're they're cleaning up the training yard and he like the horse goes and just mows the lawn. I think it's goats in that. It's goats. You're right. You're right. But I also have access to goats, so you too can have goats. <laughs> oh my god. Hey, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable. We are the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this show, you can subscribe, leave us a review, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable, check out our merch on our willingandfable.com site, or you could sneak through the ventilation ducts of the headquarters for a shady corporation and drop from the ceiling just in time to save the day and become the hero But no matter what you do, we're honestly just glad you joined us for this episode. Nice Easter egg. Thank you. It's been fun. I like that. That was fun. (laughs) Have you ever considered just negging the listeners? Like, what if there are listeners that are like, ugh, ugh, they like us. Stop it. What if we have to cater to them? Like, hey, get out. (laughs) You can't sit with us. Oh, okay. Okay. I I can throw in a neg or two every... Every once in a while for a little spice. Oh my god, my heart is racing. I don't think we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Edit undo. (laughs) I wrote one that was like, you should be the cryptid that you are in your heart. But like, that feels still too positive. We like you and we care about you and we want you to do well and live a happy life. And maybe in the future we will try to nag you just to make you a little more comfortable. But know that we will be so uncomfortable when we do it. (laughs) Oh. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) all right ron we have a new patron to welcome to the Fable family that is legally not a cult for tax purposes and legal reasons hi hi (laughs) katrin c welcome to the willing and fable fam you're already on the discord we're so happy to have you thank you for making it possible for us to tell stories thank you for being willing so that we can fable Woo! 
Ooh, that's a nice new one. <laughs> Off the cuff. How long have you been sitting on that little nugget? Truly, not a second. Not a single second. <sighs> have thought, say thought. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do you know how many times, how many times I say I'm willing and able to do something when I'm at work in a professional setting and have to like bite my tongue because I, I want to I want to say willing and fable? I'm the opposite. The number of times I've explained our name to people is staggering. Like they don't. Wait, they the don't, don't get it. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if people just laugh politely, and I assume they get the joke, <laughs> or they don't get it. But <laughs> no one understands you. I've never had to explain the name. But you know what? Who does get you? Oh, just the smooth transitions today. You know who gets you? Leah from Green Leaf Geek, who's our sponsor again? Oh my goodness! So. When Leah told us about adventure calendars, I, I thought I understood it, but I was so off because apparently my celebration of winter holidays is kind of off. Greenleaf Geek right now has adventure calendars that are like advent calendars that you get as a kid, but it has dice and geeky stuff behind the doors for all the different days instead of just badly made chocolate. I am, oh my God, when she told us about this, I lost my mind because I love a good surprise. I love a little, a little tasty. That's why I get sucked in every year with those holiday advent calendars of like makeup and things and whatever. Oh, and I always get them ones. on sale after the holidays. That's the little, yes. that's the key. But you don't have to wait for the holidays. You can have it in the summer when it's hot and gross. And all you want is something fun to distract you from the fact that it's hot and gross. And she has that. I... I'm about to out myself, but I love to have a gift closet on hand, like just with presents in case I Same. find out I have to go to a thing. And I, I want them all to be really good presents. So I think I'm going to stock up on some of the adventure calendars because that's something I would genuinely want. So if I go to a housewarming mm. or something, boom, little calendar of geeky presents. That's so smart. I've never thought to do a general, here's some gifts I can give to people closet. I have, if I see something... Through, like throughout the year that I, I think my friends would like, I'll buy it and then store it away so that by the time a birthday or a holiday comes around, I already have gifts for them. Yeah, no, I like to have a general present because, you know, what if you're invited to, I don't know, a friend of a friend's or a sig friend significant other? I don't know. You you want people to feel welcome, I think, even if you're mm -hmm. not the host. <laughs> anyway, if you two want tiny little geeky surprises every day, Check out greenleafgeek.com. Our friend Leah is amazing. You can also find her at greenleafgeek on Instagram and Twitter. When you order, please use our custom coupon code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E. You'll get 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. All right. I think it's time to jump into our topic today. Oh, my God. Yes. Let's go. I'm so excited. I'm so, so, so excited. This is the, this is the one episode Rowan and I knew. Day one. Planning season two, we were doing this episode. Yeah, I think you were the advocate for this because this is definitely a history kind of Tracy style episode. But the second you suggested it, I, I'm already planning the next two episodes I, of the, on this I topic. Love <laughs> I love it. I love. I love spies. I think the idea of spies and espionage is so fascinating. I get totally sucked in by both the reality of what it means for espionage. And the fiction of it. I love a good James Bond movie. Oh, yeah. I'm still crushed that the CIA hasn't recruited me, to be honest. 
<laughs> or have they, and that's just your excuse. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You mm-hmm. get me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so today, we're going to be exploring the more modern version of espionage and some modern examples of the age-old role of the spy. Despite what the exploding cars and laser watches would lead us to believe, espionage has existed for as long as people have been in conflict with one another. In the 4th century BC, Indian author Chanakya put out a textbook of statecraft and political economy. And at the same time, Chinese theorist Sun Tzu was adamant that one who knows the enemy and knows himself will not be endangered in a hundred engagements. Ancient Egypt had its own highly developed system of gathering enemy intelligence. There are examples of the Hebrews using spies in the Bible. The Aztecs famously used Pachtecas, or long-distance traveling merchants, to spy on enemies. The Greeks, the Romans, the Mongols, they all used spies. And if you went to an American public school like us, you probably have heard references to more than a few instances from early modern Europe and the American Revolution. Needless to say, this topic will come up again on Willing and Fable, but today, Mm -hmm. Tracy and I are bringing you two of our favorite, more modern tales of espionage. Before we dive in, as this episode is about spycraft, we will be discussing death, uh, including executions, and as well as some sexual topics, listener discretion is, as always, advised. So before I tell you my official topic, I'm going to tell a story that's like a set the tone kind of tale. Ooh, and okay. it's based on a lot of what I read about my main girl. And we're going to tackle the whole can of worms that I am referencing in a minute. I desired to be a true bohemian artist of Paris, a man of my time renowned for my taste in cigarettes, artwork, and women. Eat your heart out, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. So, at a tender age I care not to confess, I began cultivating the joie de vivre I so richly desired. I cannot recall the name of the establishment. We'd drunk so much absinthe, I don't know that I could have recalled my own name. But it was a small place, hole in the ground, filled with men who fancied themselves great writers and painters. There was rich draping of fabrics that hung at all angles to hide the dingy building beneath. The air was so filled with smoke you could never see to whom you were speaking and there was a riot of laughter at all times. And then she took the stage. It was no bigger than a bar table, and didn't raise her much higher than the ground. But when she appeared from the smoke like a princess of the East, every eye was caught and every voice fell to a hush. Matahari. She was clad in beads and gemstones that captured the light and threw it back at us in a wink. Her curving crown of a headdress seemed only an extension of the regality that swept from her in a sensuous wave. Her hair and lashes were dark, as if she'd colored them with coal. Though I cannot remember a single detail of her face besides... I was otherwise engaged with the rest of her form. 
She wound and unwound like a snake, her chest covered in a suggestive corona of golden beads, and the rest was all diaphanous fabric, thinner than the smoke that came from the crowd's collective sigh. And thank the gods of the land that birthed her, she began taking it all off. I tell you now, Matahari, goddess of the scorching sun, she put every last girl parading the clubs and calling themselves Green Fairy. Oh, she put them to shame. All right. So that story was based on a lot of the language mm-hmm. that I saw used to describe this woman at her time. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into the 2020 understanding of this moving forward, <laughs> but I wanted everybody to have an image of the widely published version of Matahari before we dove in. So, Tracy, I pulled up two pictures for you. One is a colorized image of this woman, and the other is a black and white. And she had numerous photos of her taken. Um, She, as you guys can tell, she danced at a lot of clubs. Um, But, Trace, give me me a mental picture. I mean, I know it's terrible that the first thought I had was like, oh, her body looked like my body. (laughs) No, it's not. That is one of the same thoughts I had. There are so many good pictures of her being a human. Yeah, she. so she is beautiful. I mean, objectively, I also like that her nose kind of looks like my nose. So I just... Oh, I never thought about that. You're kind of right. It's because you have a small nose. You have a small petite nose. So your brain doesn't immediately go, nose like my nose? Someone have (laughs) nose like my nose? Yes, Um, the things we find. (laughs) So the colored picture is absolutely stunning. You know, I can see where you used your descriptions of her in your story where there's a lot of beads and jewelry. Um, She looks very regal with her head tilted up. There's blue fabric on one side of her waist, red fabric on the other, and she's got a sort of jeweled bikini top with two armbands and a beautiful headdress. In the black and white ones, it's a picture from her in profile with a gorgeous headdress of a cobra. A picture of her, and then two pictures of her dancing, both of which show her body as a human body with the stomach moving, her arms moving along to um, the last one. She's kind of, her head tilted to the side, her eyes locked with the camera, looking up through her lashes. Very, I mean, these would be beautiful pictures at any time in history. Definitely. She's not... In the in the black and white pictures, I would say she's not someone that we would look at today and go, she is absolutely stunning and a, a game-changing beauty. But you can already tell in those pictures the way she moves. She could she doesn't need to be the classic our classic standard of beauty to be captivating. Oh yeah. I th- I would think that this woman has just presence, just presence for days. She fills a whole room. Mm-hmm. All right, now I'm going to break everyone's hearts a little bit. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) As Russell Warren Howe, journalist and author of Matahari, The True Story, said, quote, The legend far surpasses the woman. No. I know. I know. I'm sorry. So I am really excited about actually seeing her timeline play out. 
And so I'm going to try to go through it as chronologically as I possibly can. And Trace, if you have any questions, just jump in. Mm -hmm. Our Lady of the Day, Matahari, wore many names. Margarita McLeod um, being one of them, Margarita Zell. She was born in the Netherlands in 1876 as Margarita Gertruda Zell. And she was the daughter of a formerly successful hat merchant. When she was 13, her father left the family to live with another woman, and within two years, her mother passed away. So Margarita was sent to school to learn to become a teacher, and at the age of 16, she was expelled for, quote, having an affair with the headmaster. And I'm just gonna flip that and say, when she was 16, her school's headmaster took advantage of her, and she was expelled while a man who abused his power kept his power. Yes, 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 yes. Excellent. Yes. I couldn't couldn't have said it any better myself. Yeah, no. Uh, even in her youth, Margarita was known for her looks. She had dark hair and a dark complexion, and a school friend called her an orchid among the dandelions. Quick question. So she was born in the Netherlands. Were her family from the Netherlands for generations? Thank you for asking. She was born in the Netherlands. She was Dutch. I have no way of knowing her heritage back for generations, but Margarita had dark hair and she was considered, quote, darker of complexion by other Dutch women, but she was a Dutch white woman. Wow. Oh, I just blew out my microphone. Oh, my God. Yeah, I didn't know that until I started researching this. So uh, there's there's layers here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you kind of described her before knowing that because it shows you the power of advertising and mm -hmm. her pictures will be on our instagram as always with the episodes but you know trace you you saw what they sold you it worked mm -hmm. so now she's living in the hague two years had passed and she was searching for a way to change her life she didn't want to be a teacher so she started reading the lonely hearts section of the newspaper and i would kill to get my hands on that and here she found a Dutch colonial officer of Scottish descent named Rudolf MacLeod. They were married in July of 1895. He was 22 years older than the still teenage Margarita. And he was in the perfect position to make her life more exciting because his military service posted him in Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony at the time. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for Margarita, her military husband was also an abusive cheater. And to be fair, she slept around with young officers who were also stationed in the colony. But it wasn't actually the sex that would break up their marriage. It was a result of the sex. So Rudolph contracted syphilis from one of the women he had an affair with and in turn passed it to Margarita and then hereditarily passed it to their children, Norman John and Louise Jean. At the time, mercury was the only treatment for syphilis. Oh, no. Norman John's illness was particularly severe, and he died from a mercury overdose while a doctor was treating him at the age of two. <gasps> oh. It was his death that finally destroyed their marriage. They separated, and in 1902, they came back to the Netherlands and officially divorced. As I'm sure you can imagine, being a divorcee is not a great position for Margarita to be in at the beginning of the 20th century in Europe. So she moved to Paris, which was one of the most famously progressive cities on the continent. Mm 
Mm-hmm. This is the time that became known as the Belle Epoque. Between the years of 1871 and 1914 were some of the most artistic and glamorous moments in French history, depending on who you ask. If you're imagining the Baz Luhrmann film Moulin Rouge. That's 100% what I was imagining, yes, Moulin Rouge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly where you want to be. That's why I mentioned toulouse Trek. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia describes the period this way, quote, Occurring during the era of the French Third Republic, it was a period characterized by optimism, regional peace, economic prosperity, colonial expansion, and technological, scientific, and cultural innovations. In this era of France's cultural and artistic climate, particularly within Paris, the arts markedly flourished with numerous masterpieces of literature, music, theater, and visual art gaining extensive recognition. The historian R.R. Palmer said of the time, quote, European civilization achieved its greatest power in global politics and also exerted its maximum influence upon peoples outside Europe. Margarita could speak French, Italian, Spanish, German, and Malay. Wow. And she'd learned local Indonesian and Malay dances while living abroad with her now ex-husband. Margarita was worldly and daring in a way that really captivated the men in Paris. And beginning in 1905, she became a striptease dancer. As the story goes, one day at the Guillaume Museum of Asian Art in Paris, the mysterious dancer, who they think had once gone by Margarita McLeod, now enters as Matahari, meaning Eye of Dawn, or Eye of the Day, in Malay. And everyone was transfixed, and her career just took off. Mm. After this, Matahari billed herself as a Javanese princess. Hence how I described her above. Yep. She sat for painters, she performed in private parties and salons, and just captivated audiences in some of the most famous theaters across Europe. And Even for these exciting artistic times, her shows, where she appeared in loose diaphanous clothing, often stripping almost completely naked, um, they were often stigmatized. People tried to keep them from happening. Even though, interestingly, I read but can't confirm that she would always strip everything except her top because she liked to keep her breasts covered, which Mm -hmm. is not traditionally what you hear about with the American nudity standards yeah she claimed quote she was simply reenacting the sacred dances of the priestesses of some cult or another that was in indonesia that's how biographics put it okay and that's how she got away with it because she was doing what other white women weren't the newly named matahari was famous for performing strip teases that were exciting and quote-unquote exotic Mm. So let's talk about Orientalism. (laughs) There is a blog called Reappropriate that explores, quote, Asian American feminism, politics, and pop culture. It's run by writer and speaker Jen Fang. Check out her website in the show notes, please, because I'm about to quote her. It's just a great website. Quote, Orientalism is not to mock East Asian cultures, although it can certainly contribute to or culminate in the mockery of East Asian cultures. 
popularized by the theorist Edward W. Said in his seminal book by the same name, Orientalism has become one of the founding principles of post-colonial and critical race theory. Orientalism is, in a nutshell, the way that the West perceives of, and thereby defines, the East. Fang continues, In this relationship, as defined by Edward Said, the West is the occident, the norm, the standard, the center, the mm-hmm. fixed point around which the rest of the world orbits. The East is, by contrast, the Orient, the abnormal, the exotic, the foreign, the other, defined specifically by its deviance from the occidental Western norm. In Orientalism, Asia is not defined by what Asia is. Rather, Asia becomes an otherized fiction of everything the West is not, and one that primarily serves to reinforce the West's own moral conception of itself. End quote. That was such a good quote to explain what feels so weird about that time period where everything was described as oriental and exotic, and everything that came from that part of the world was put under that other category and made as this weird, special strange thing. Absolutely. She's a talented writer, and that's why I wanted to include her words in their entirety. Because as I go through this story, I just want everyone to remember that we're learning about a woman who profited from that exact racist behavior. And that behavior has effects that reverberated all the way to the cultural landscape and media of 2021. That still happens. We we still mm-hmm. see Orientalism all over the place. And Matahari is a historical figure who is interesting and multifaceted. And I think it's important to remember, as I continue telling the story, that she was not all good. She combined her, quote, darker complexion with dressing the part so that she could be just sexy and other enough to intrigue while still white enough to be safe for the people for whom she made her money. Mm-hmm. Matahari said of herself, quote, I never could dance well. People came to see me because I was the first who dared to show myself naked to the public. Which, you know, that's not quite true, but whatever. Her image was carefully cultivated. From the lack of skill she professed, she's also known to have said, quote, The dance is a poem of what each movement is a word, which is like the perfect sexy way to make pseudo intellectual French dudes fall to their knees. I was just thinking the same thing. Just someone sitting there with their drink in one hand, the cigarette in the other and being like, her movements are a poem that speaks to the undulating universe as it oh, yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, that's my dude who told the story at the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hair parted severely on one side and very firmly slicked over. Oh, 100% and wants to live a bohemian lifestyle. He doesn't have a lot of money, but he also has a lot of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Her performances garnered her fame, but that was also due in part to her many affairs and the gossip that accompanied the trysts. She courted officers and lawyers and journalists and government officials and numerous wealthy men who just showered her in gifts and money. I think Matahari is so important to discuss because on the one hand, we have this woman who, she's a sex worker, like, girl, make your money, but boy, do I wish 
you weren't a racist. I wish she wasn't a... a, a yeah, I wish she wasn't... A, I mean, I could say I wish things all day, every day, but there, there is something very uncomfortable with the fact that she is a white woman pretending to be a woman of color and then using that to her advantage while still also retaining the privilege of being a white woman. Like There is just something inherently really uncomfortable about that where I think oh, 100%. it'd be so much easier to celebrate this woman who was a woman of color as a sex worker using all of her disadvantages to her advantage and that's not the case here and so there is something very very i can't think of a better word than uncomfortable about Mm -hmm. looking at what she's doing through our lens today i shied away from covering this topic for a minute tracy can tell you that i put it off but i i really wanted to talk about her because i think so often we get stuck in this virtue signaling cycle where we can only talk about figures who are either all amazing, perfect examples of liberal, feminist, Mm anti-racism, or horrible villains that are 100% all bad all the time. And people don't exist that way. And this woman did, did good things, and she also did horrible things. And she that is what makes her an interesting figure from history because we can see exactly what people were doing at that time and what they thought was acceptable. And that teaches us so much more mm-hmm. than speaking in absolutes because we are not the Sith, baby. <laughs> it's almost like we live with the dagger of nuance and the sword of context. I, mi- I mixed those up. No, you said it right. <laughs> was that right? The dagger of yeah. nuance and the sword of context? Or the- yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, continue on. In 2017, 48 of Matahari's letters were published. The family had kept them secret for a century. And even though she is famously known to be a sex worker, in her letters she told her cousin Edward that she developed a loathing for sex after everything that had happened with her ex-husband, Randolph MacLeod. And she said that any time she had a relationship with a man, she only did it to provide for her daughter. And while we could sit here going, like, likely story... You're just doing it for your daughter. Mm-hmm. I actually think this is a likely story. The, her ex-husband gave her syphilis. The only treatment for that was mercury. Yeah. I bet homegirl really wasn't loving her sex life. No, I agree with that completely. It, it Not to mention the trauma of uh, all the things he may or may not have done to her and just his, her experience with an abusive husband. Oh, yeah. It's a totally valid feeling for her to have. So she's now rich. With the coming of World War I, that meant that the call for her talents was waning. In June of 1914, she was very grateful to be invited to dance in an upcoming show in Berlin. But the show was canceled when the Germans declared war on Russia on the 1st of August. And she said, okay, not to worry, I'm just going to go back home to Paris. Except, oh wait, on August 3rd, Germany declared war with France. (gasps) Instead, (laughs) she chose to return to The Hague... Uh, which is not only her country of origin, but also a neutral territory. By 1915, she began dating Karl Kramer, and he was the honorary consul of Germany in Amsterdam. But he was actually a German spy, and he had a plan to convince Matahari to become a German spy. Hmm. After all, she spoke numerous languages, she had a neutral passport, and she was sexy as hell. So in exchange for this work, he offered her 20,000 francs. And here's where the story of a dancer and courtesan becomes the story of a spy. In some tellings, she was given the official codename H21. 
and was all set up to make life super difficult for the Allied forces because she was a sexy bad girl with lots and lots of money and she could keep being a sexy bad girl, not to mention a lot of people didn't think she was white. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yep. But again, 2017 swooped in and just brought us all this new information because that year, the French army declassified numerous documents about Matahari, totaling 1,275 pages. So we know what a lot of her contemporaries did not, which means we have a different story. Matahari refuses to spy for the Germans, but she keeps the 20,000 francs. <laughs> and at the time, she just had her furs and jewels taken by German border guards. So she was likely taking this as a payment and a big screw you, you owe me, you German bastards moment. Mm -hmm. So she's on her way back to Paris, finally. And the ship she took docked in the British port of Folkestone. British intelligence officers questioned all the travelers. And an officer said of Matahari, she speaks French. English, Italian, Dutch, and probably German. Handsome, bold type of woman, well and fashionably dressed, not above suspicion. She should be refused permission to return to the UK. Ooh. This guy even sent a message to the French Deuxième Bureau, and this was the counter-espionage unit of the Ministry of War, and it was headed by Captain Georges Ledeau. And he's kind of our big bad guy here. Ooh, okay. All right. Keep an eye on Lido. Got it. Uh, in a world in a world of gray space, he's the, the baddiest bad. Okay. I mean, except for, anyway. January 1916. She's being hot. She's hanging out with other hot people in Paris. And now Lido has officers following her, listening in on her phone calls, reading her mail, the French reports from the time will say that they were looking for evidence of her being a spy, but there was no evidence to collect. So enter Matahari's one true love, Vladimir de Maslov. He was a Russian captain, blind in one eye from his time during the war, and he proposed to her before he ran back off to war again. So Matahari has a neutral passport. But she wanted to be with Maslov, so she needed more than that. She went to Jean Hallier, her ex-lover. This guy worked for the War Department, but he secretly worked for Captain Ledeau. With Hallier arranging the meeting, Captain Ledeau asked Matahari to spy for the French government by seducing high-ranking Germans in neutral countries and reporting back all the secrets she learned. If she took this deal, she would be allowed to travel where her fiancé was stationed, also, she would get 1 million francs, which is more than 3 million U.S. dollars today. Oh, my God. And we could sit here and shout gold digger. But money is necessary for survival. Our girl makes money via men. That is, that is her thing. Mm -hmm. Her husband has an injury that might affect the rest of his life, and he also might be disowned by his very rich family, so she needs cash. Mm -hmm. And also, the French aren't the Germans, so we're like, okay, maybe get your money. Right. Ledeau told Matahari to await instructions. Then she would go back to The Hague via Spain. But he never gave her any instructions. <gasps> so our girl is hanging out with no idea how to spy or who to spy on, and she has no clue how to get a message to her new boss in secret. 
Oh, my God. But eventually she does make her way to Spain. The British stopped her at port again and took her to London, where she was kept in custody until November of 1916. Again, they just keep putting her in custody because they're like, wow, she's hot and speaks a lot of languages and travels and has a neutral passport. That's sus. At the time, MI5 was trying to figure out who she was. Margarita Zell, the actual Matahari, or an actual German spy named Clara Benedicts. Oh, my God. So to save her skin, Matahari admitted to the British that she was a French secret agent because the French and the British are supposed to be allies. Mm -hmm. When the British called Captain Ladeau, he said, quote, understand nothing, send Matahari back to Spain. Author Pat Shipman has a theory about all the games that are going on. He believes that MI5 thought Lido was pretending to employ her only because he secretly believed she really was a secret agent for Germany. Shipman believes Lido would have loved for the Brits to get rid of her for him, but they didn't do that. In December of 1916, Matahari is in Madrid. Captain Lido still had not told her what to do, but the money was a big deal, so she seduced German officer Major Arnold von Kahl. After only three sexy, sexy times, she has her info. Mm -hmm. The major revealed that the German Navy was planning a submarine attack in partnership with the Ottoman forces. They were going to attack what was, at the time, the French colony of Morocco. That was a plan to start a North African front. And Matahari sent this very important news to Lido right away. But he never responded. So Matahari did what she does. She went through her Rolodex of useful lovers and chose to get advice from the French officer, Colonel Joseph Davinia. And he said, hey, go do your hot girl thing and get us some more info, please. Which turned out to be a very bad deal for Matahari because Call became suspicious right away. So the Germans are now coming in with a very clever plan to do away with Matahari. So everyone hates her right now. Oh, full, yeah, for sure. Full stop. They're all trying to get rid of her because they all think she's doing things for the other guy. And she's just trying to spy for the French. Yep. Okay. The Germans believed she was a French spy, and they were still pissed that she'd stolen 20,000 francs from Kramer when they'd asked her to be a spy for their team. So Call radioed Berlin asking them to get rid of Matahari on the grounds that she was a German double agent. But he didn't just send a run-of-the-mill message. He used a German code that he knew the French had already cracked. Oh, that is diabolical. So, via the tower that was on top of the Eiffel Tower, the French intercepted the message. It got to Captain Ladeau, and his day was made! Matahari had been driving him nuts forever, and frankly, and this is the real exciting thing, the French needed to raise public opinion after the battles of the Somme and Verdun went very, very badly. Knowing nothing about these dealings, Matahari returned to France in January of 1917 to claim the one million franc reward that she believed she was owed for the very valuable information that she sent over to Lido. 
But instead, on February 19, 1917, Matahari was arrested for, quote, espionage on behalf of Germany. They took her to Paris's harshest women's prison, the Saint-Lazare, where she was interrogated by a magistrate who had a particular distaste for what he called loose women. Mmm, gross. It wasn't until July 24th that Matahari stood trial. She was represented by another ex-lover, Edouard Clunet, who had no experience with military trials, but he was clever enough to point out that the only piece of evidence they had on her was that one intercepted message from the Germans, a message that he suggested Ledeau may have had a hand in creating. Matahari, ever the performer, was brilliant in the courtroom. She famously said, A courtesan, I admit it. A spy, never. It was good she was such a wonderful performer because the trial was only ever for show. Biographics said, quote, A few weeks earlier, the 20th of April, the disastrous Nivelle Offensive had ground to a halt. 40,000 French soldiers had died on a single day, the 16th of April. As a consequence, 68 divisions had mutinied in June, refusing to continue fighting and dying for France. The general public, they needed a scapegoat for these failures. And what better could that be than a spy? Even better, a foreign spy. Even better, a woman of loose morals. <laughs> Gross. On July 27, 1918, she was convicted of espionage and treason. She was sentenced to death by firing squad. The Dutch government had no plan to intervene. On October 15, 1917, Matahari, who was now 41 years old, was executed at Vincennes Castle on the outskirts of Paris. She refused the blindfold that was offered to her, saying, Must I wear that? and stared down the members of the firing squad. The story goes she blew a kiss to her lawyer and the priest, maybe even to the gunmen themselves. Henry Wales, who was present at her death, had an eyewitness account published via the International News Service four days later. The awesome website Eyewitness History has the entire article available as well as many exceptional firsthand accounts of historical moments from around the world. This excerpt absolutely stuck in my brain. Quote, she did not die as actors and moving picture stars would have us believe that people die when they are shot. She did not throw up her hands, nor did she plunge straight forward or straight back. Instead, she seemed to collapse. Slowly, inertly, she settled to her knees, her head up always, and without the slightest change of expression on her face. For the fraction of a second, it seemed she tottered there, on her knees, gazing directly at those who had taken her life. Then she fell backward, bending at the waist, with her legs doubled up beneath her. She lay prone, motionless, with her face turned toward the sky. A non-commissioned officer, who was accompanied by a lieutenant, drew his revolver from the big black holster strapped around his waist. Bending over, he placed the muzzle of the revolver almost, but not quite, against the left temple of the spy. He pulled the trigger, and the bullet tore into the brain of the woman. Matahari was surely dead. End quote. The sergeant major present at her death famously said, By God, this lady knows how to die. Ugh. I mean, cool line. I kind of like it. If I have to die dramatically, I hope someone says that about me. Cool line. Still murder. 
Nah, yeah. So in 1930, the German government exculpated Matahari. Because her body was unclaimed after execution, her remains were sent to be used for medical study. Her head was embalmed and kept in the Museum of Anatomy in Paris, but in 2000, her head and the rest of her body were found to be missing possibly since 1953, and to this day, they are unaccounted for. Oh, my brain just goes to some creepy scientist in the 50s taking it and being weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to imagine it was a clerical error when, like, departments were moving. Mm. Yeah, no. Mm. There were a lot of rumors at the time that, you know, they all fired blanks so that Matahari could escape because that's so much sexier, but no. Right. No. And then the last detail I just want to include before my story wraps up. There are numerous book and film adaptations of Matahari's life. You can go find them. Many of them are quite good. But instead of discussing those, I would like to direct you to learn more about some of the dances Matahari was ripping off. Mm -hmm. She was, as we said, a very complex woman of her time. And it's so important to remember that her life was only ever able to look the way that it did because the Dutch colonized Indonesia and she was able to use the sexualization that's a major part of Orientalism to her advantage. So in the show notes today, I added a video. It's right at the top. And that provides just one example of traditional Indonesian dance. And I found this video particularly helpful because they show far shots of the dancers, musicians, and singers, but they also include close-ups that really highlight the very specific details of the choreography. Uh, this style of dance includes every finger movement and mm -hmm. even small details of the dancers' expressions. And it's it's just really exciting to get to see the true version of what, you know, all these people were kind of seeing Matahari approximate. Mm-hmm. And then last but certainly not least, because I think a lot of times we all fall into the trap of Eastern cultures, they get wrapped up into Orientalism only being past tense. Uh, I also included a link in the show notes for the Spotify playlist I listened to while I was writing this, and it's a, a playlist someone made of all modern Indonesian pop music, and it's so good. I... It's filled with bops. It's now one of my, my car ride playlists. So I would just also recommend that as a really fun thing to kind of add to your week. And that I love that. I need some bops. So I'm going to listen to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I am so sucked in. And I love to hum along with the music that I'm <laughs> listening to. So it's it's really good. I'm excited to listen to it because I unabashedly adore Bollywood music and will bop along to that. I think, yeah, I think you'll find a lot of similar tempo moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that energy level. I just, endless bops, endless moving and grooving. I really like listening to music in languages that I don't understand while I'm writing because I don't get distracted from what I'm trying to type. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that is the complex, multifaceted story of Matahari. All right. That was amazing. I did not know. I knew of Matahari. I did not know any of those details of her life. I had the same exact picture you did. I was like, oh, yeah, sexy woman of color doing her sex worker thing and being being a spy. And 
probably a double agent, but she was exactly none of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then history, unfortunately, did not provide. I mean, it does bum me out that the French government really got away with using a woman as a scapegoat, especially a woman who appeared to the masses to be a woman of color, potentially. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, Tracy, I know exactly zero about your topic. <laughs> I am so excited. My topic today is going to be talking about the Moscow rules. Some of our listeners might have heard of these. It's become really popular over the last couple of years as uh, the author of the book, The Moscow Rules, has been doing a lot of talks. But I'm going to dig into what spies and espionage look like in the Cold War. Real quick, is the author a woman? Because I watched a video while I was writing that was a woman. The author is a husband and wife duo. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen something from the wife then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the husband is um, – I'll get into it in a little bit, but the husband is Antonio Mendez, and he is the real-life Ben Affleck from the movie Argo. Oh. hmm I love Cold War spying. It's a lot – there's a lot of propaganda wrapped up into it, but boy, is it just dramatic. It's dramatic. So the book, The Moscow Rules, is written by Antonio and Jonna Mendez, both of whom were head of disguise at the CIA at different points during the Cold War. I I hope I'm not crazy, but I think she does videos where she analyzes spying in movies and says why it's good or bad. Oh, she totally does. She totally does. Oh, she does those. She does, you know, CIA expert analyzes TV shows, movies. She, uh, She goes through and actually shows some of the old technology that's no longer being used by the CIA. I have all of that to talk about. She's so in cool. This episode. She's so cool. I don't know about you, Ron. When it came to espionage, I always go to James Bond. That's what I think of. A super spy traveling the world in a suave suit, living the life of luxury and intrigue. 100%. <laughs> the reality is so different. So I'm going to talk to you, uh, give a quick little story about a woman named Martha Peterson. Martha Peterson worked in Moscow in Russia in 1975. She played the role of a fun-loving government worker named Party Marty. <laughs> she <laughs> she often went out and drank with Marines, other secretaries, and workers, but never, ever, ever with anyone from the CIA. This is because Martha Peterson was not an ordinary government employee. She was a secret agent working for the CIA. Her mission was to handle one of the most valuable Soviet sources the CIA had ever cultivated. A foreign ministry worker who saw the incoming cables from every Soviet embassy in the world. Her source's codename was Trigon. Marty and Trigon never met in person. They only ever communicated through dead drops. This is where she would place an object with messages inside, and he would show up an hour or so later, drop a rusty can or an old oily glove, something no one would want to pick up, and tucked inside of that would be film of top-secret documents that he'd photographed with a miniature camera. I wonder if you could get away with that now, with so many cameras being everywhere. I mean, everyone is kind of basically under surveillance now. I'm so curious what technology they use now, because as Jonna Mendez says, the only reason she's able to talk about all the stuff she can talk about now is because it's no longer being used, and they've gone on to more updated technology. And when I talk about some of the stuff that they used in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
What are we using now? Well, you heard about how the CIA purchased that Swiss company. And turns out countries around the world have been just giving information to that supposedly neutral Swiss company for decades. Turns out it was just the CIA. They were like, oh, thanks for the update, bud. And thanks for paying us to do to get the update. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think this whole thing is so interesting. So, Marty's contact, Trigon, was really a man named Alexander Ogordonik. And he was eventually captured and forced to write out his confession. But he said he would only do so with his own pen. This pen, as it turns out, was an item he requested from the CIA, and it contained a natural poison. Yes! 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 Mm -hmm. He famously used that pen to end his own life instead of giving up any more secrets to the KGB. Who fell for that? Who was like, okay, take your pen? (laughs) I think they – I wouldn't have expected the pen to be poisoned. I could see him just being like, if I'm, I, I could see him saying convincingly, if I'm going to do this, I want it to be in my own words with my own pen, so it's clearly me. Oh, see, I'd, I'd be like, no, nah, there's that pen is secretly a gun that can fire exactly one bullet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they should have suspected it. I, I objectively would not make a good spy. <laughs> is that why you went into computers? Is that why you became? A computer human because of spies. Tell me, truly, this is your confession moment. Sure, let's go with that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's why I definitely work in the part of IT that has to do with hackers and spying and definitely not just nothing to do with that at all. Mm, Tracy's a hacker. You heard it here first. Uh Uh-huh. Three weeks after Trigon was captured, Marty Peterson was captured And she was taken and interrogated overnight, but eventually the next day was kicked out of Moscow. She continued to work for the CIA for another 26 years. What is up with these women being captured? And then they're like, ah, no biggie. The, I'll talk about it more, but the KGB were shocked that the Americans used a woman. That's why you use a woman. I think they didn't even fully believe it. They would not use women. To spy. The KGB were very regimented, very structured, and they would not use women. And the, the the CIA was like, we'll use literally anything and everything at our disposal. It's so fascinating to have your story come after mine because mine was basically every government be like, get the sexy woman to be a spy. And then yours, the, the Russians are like, wait, women? No spy. No. No spy. Women no spy. Women no do spy. Women no good spy for spy no. <laughs> <laughs> The trick, as it turns out, to being a spy is to be as boring and uninteresting as possible, which is so the opposite from the suit-wearing, lady-seducing James Bond who tells everyone his name at the drop of a hat. The key to a successful operation as a spy is to have the best disguise, the best story, and the best plan possible, and that is where Jonna and Tony Mendez come in. That is what I tell myself at night when I'm staring up at the ceiling at 2 a.m. and I'm like, I can't believe I'm not a spy. I'm like, it's okay. I'm too interesting to be a spy. I'm too cool. They they can't want me to be a spy. Yeah. You're too interesting. <laughs> they, they can't want you. You stand out. You're iconic. You're the right. moment. You're, uh, you're everything. I'm a main character and real spies are side characters. Background actors at best. Real spies are background. Yeah. Real spies are, real spies are background actors. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about our duo. 
John Mendez is a retired CIA intelligence officer with over 25 years of service, including acting as the chief of disguise at the CIA. Her late husband, Antonio Tony Mendez, is famous for his role in the Argo operation, in which American emissaries had to pretend to be a Canadian film crew in order to flee Iran. Tony Mendez was played by Ben Affleck in the movie based off of the book that Tony wrote with the same title, Argo. He also, at a separate time, worked as the head of disguise for the CIA. Isn't that so cool? I just, I want to sit down at their dinner table and have her be like, oh, I came up with this cool new thing and have him be like, well, you know, it's not that cool. And then have them like go head to head and come up with this like amazing idea because they're both brilliant. They're just back and forth, back and forth. It seems like they worked, they were, they worked well together. They respected the hell out of each other. It just, the work, I mean, shoot. Jonna was head of the CIA in disguise in the 80s. She was leading that. And, and the, the way she talks about it is just so incredible. Together, the two of them wrote their book, The Moscow Rules, uh, because Tony Mendez was dying from complications from Parkinson. So Oof. they got it pushed through from the CIA, uh, the approval, because they couldn't release the book until they got approval from the CIA. So they got the approval. And only a couple of days later, Tony Mendez passed away. <gasps> The book was published in 2019, and Jonna Mendez has been going and doing a lot of press, and that's why you see a lot of her videos talking about this book. She's done TED Talks. She did a talk and a live stream for the International Spy Museum. She does a lot of really cool engagement with communities and, and work about her time in the CIA. The International Spy Museum is so cool. They have one of Matahari's beaded bras, but it's too fragile to show. Oh. I want to go there. It's in Washington, D.C. Come out and visit. I can take you. All right. We're doing it. Yeah. It's added to the Willing and Fable tour. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine being a spy and saving the day in the 80s with a bad perm and, like, substandard hair conditioner? <laughs> oh, yeah. Get ready for seeing an insane hairstyle that someone wore. Okay. Okay. So now we're in the 1980s. It's the Cold War and we're in Moscow, which was by far the most difficult city for American spies to operate within. It was for this reason that it was the only city with its own set of rules. The Moscow Rules. Tony Mendez states in his book that the Moscow Rules became a set of behaviors used to manipulate hostile surveillance, with the goal of making them think that you were doing something you were not, that you were there when you were absent, and that if they could not locate you, they had lost you. Not that you had escaped. The fault, of course, was theirs. Then, when they were almost ready to report their mistake, we would arrange for them to find you. You would magically appear, and the surveillance team would breathe a sigh of relief. There is no limit to a human being's ability to rationalize the truth. This, incidentally, became one of the most important rules. Agents in Moscow had 24-7 surveillance to the point where even the embassy building was bugged down to the foundations. A private elevated room had to be created for the most top-secret conversations. If agents were discovered, they would be killed, making these operations life-or-death scenarios. Everyone needs to know that I keep just giving Tracy jaw-drop face. <laughs> she does. She keeps just being shocked, and I love it. All right, Rowan, you ready to talk about five of these Moscow rules? Yes. Rule number one, never go against your gut. These agents were monitored 100% of the time, in car, on foot, at home, at work, everywhere. 
every foreign agent you interacted with was KGB, and it was vital to trust your instincts. That little old lady in the bathroom giving you weird vibes, trust that instinct. Using your intuition is vital to intelligence work because it is your personal armor and it will save you if you let it. Rule number two, don't look back. You are never completely alone and you are always being followed. There is no reason to look because they are there. But you still have a job to do, dead drop signals, communication, so keep moving forward. The problem they ran into is the KGB had one goal, to stop you from working, and you had one goal, to work. So how do you solve for this? By being boring. (laughs) What you do is you create a very predictable routine, and you never do anything of interest. Eventually, the agents tailing you will relax a bit, and boom, that is your opportunity. All you needed was five seconds. In five seconds, you could turn a corner... And before they could catch up, you could do what's called working the gap. This means you could do anything from releasing a dead drop, swap out personnel, pick up communications, etc. Havilland Smith was the CIA officer who first tested and proved this five-second theory. He became so boring and predictable that his surveillance grew bored, and then he tested out his first dead drop. And it was a success. From then on, the CIA knew that this was a tactic they could take advantage of. Ugh, could you... Ugh, could you imagine having to A, know that you have five seconds without looking and just being that aware and B, risking your life just so you can be boring in another country for maybe a five-second opportunity? Oh, yeah. It's insane, the pressure of these situations. And and John Amendez says, because there's her job, which was helping the case officers who then also worked with agents, but those agents were never solicited within the country. They would find them abroad and then have them work as agents for the CIA. So people like Martha Peterson never actually connected with Trigon in person. It was all through dead jobs and distant communication. And these were rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So you would have your routine. You would go on your routine constantly and you would know for your dead drop, okay, we're going to go on this routine. And the trick they always did was take two right turns two right turns Mm -hmm. and your surveillance would be thrown off enough that you had five seconds to do what you needed to do. And you would practice it and plan it so that on the day of you could do that and then you could potentially be a free agent roaming about and do whatever the operation is that you needed to do that day. That's so funny. I think, if I'm correct, that UPS drivers are given routes where they only make right turns because you lose so much time making a left in traffic. The fact that companies, governments are like, you know, you have to turn like this because it Mm -hmm. it affects everything. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Okay, rule number three. Stay consistent over time. Do not break your cover no matter what. John Mendez likes to tell the story of Marty Peterson when she talks about this rule because Marty was the first woman operative sent to Moscow. Not only was she an exceptional officer, but because she was a woman, the KGB never suspected her. They would not, and they did not ever use women agents. And when Marty was captured, she kept her cover, and she never broke character. And you see it. She was released. This is why we can't be spies. I could never be a spy. This is it. This is why we're not consistent enough. No, absolutely not. I absolutely not. Rule number four. Use misdirection, illusion, and deception. 
illusion. <laughs> Tony Mendez describes this perfectly in the Moscow Rules when he explains that it is best to use a larger motion to hide a smaller motion. For instance, if you look at your watch with one hand, it would be easier to pass a package into a colleague's hand with the other without being noticed. So many cool tricks that they would use. Wow, it's like theater school. Yeah, you, you would know about this from theater school with acting and everything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any of this. So I think it's so interesting the way that you can kind of trick people into seeing what you want them to see. Trip a little bit so that you can pass something off with your hand while your scene is falling. Yeah, that's most of what magicians do. They're like, ooh, sparkly. And then in the non-sparkly area, you do something boring mm -hmm. and useful. Oh, they relied on magicians and Hollywood a lot for the work. I mean, Tony Mendez was famous for working really closely with Hollywood and especially Hollywood special effects artists to figure out how they could translate what was done. Especially, they talk about the movie Planet of the Apes. He worked with the special effects artists from that movie. And the problem they ran into, and I'll talk about this later on, was that you needed hours to get it that perfect. Mm -hmm. And you had seconds with these spies. So how could they create something that quality that could be used in seconds? We will get into that. But for Ugh. now, I want to talk about the last rule, which is float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> Ex-KGB officer Stanislav Levchenko defected to the United States in 1979 and suggested the use of the acronym MICE, to explain the four basic motivations for espionage, especially against one's own government. Money, ideology, compromise, and ego. To quote the Moscow Rules, Ethical espionage is a contradiction in terms. Espionage is, by definition, illegal. It is the theft of secrets from a foreign state. It involves blackmailing, bribing, or otherwise persuading a foreign nation in defiance of the laws of their country to supply another government with secret materials. As such, espionage can hardly be elevated to an ethical plane. It is a matter of doing what one must for the reasons one chooses to do so. End quote. So, if you go into the world of espionage, Mendez recommends staying quiet and laying low but if you must strike, do it fast and do it hard. One of my major pet peeves in consuming spy media mm -hmm. or, you know, the political dramas where there's shootouts or the bad guy. Right. People usually on Twitter are like, oh, my God, he's gaslighting her or that character is such a gaslighter. And I'm like, yeah, my dude, they're a spy. That's their job. Like, It's all about manipulation. If you're going to consume morally gray media, we can just, like, stop moralizing it in real life. It's right. not – honestly, if your spy's not gaslighting someone, they're probably a dead spy. So at least as far as movies go. Right. I think we want the best of both worlds where they're spying because of all the ideological reasons. That whole MICE acronym is like either you get money or, you know, it's ego or – Whatever, whatever. Uh, the ideological was the one they said was sometimes the the best and the worst to have in people. It could be the most challenging and the most helpful. And you want it to be this ideological thing of they're doing the right thing for the country and their country's on the right side and they are spying to, you know, and what you're doing is inherently illegal and immoral. Like it just is. So it's tough to then have your main character just at heart be a good person. And if you're buying into the 
propaganda from the Cold War that, like, America was this shining, perfect halo of virgin, innocent perfection, and Russia was this evil, bad devil, then, oof, I'm so sorry for you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story, and then we're going to talk about some of my favorite disguise techniques from the CIA. Okay. Okay. As I stood on the sidewalk a few blocks away from the airport, I was certain that my racing heart would give me away. It was beating so loudly I could feel the pounding reverberate through my skull like a drum. It didn't matter that the chatter of crowds and the whirring of cars on the street overpowered any sounds at all. I was still certain that they could hear it. Somehow, that the thump, thump, thump of it would give me away. The KGB could be clever like that sometimes. I stood on the curb as though waiting for a car with a small suitcase in my right hand and a coffee cup in my left, my pink, button-down dress tugging against my thighs in the evening breeze. I quietly cursed the fashion gods for making miniskirts popular this summer, and I pulled my hands closer to my chest in order to stop myself from tugging my skirt down for the twentieth time. As I stood on the curb, I scanned the crowd looking for a man with a red and white checkered button-down shirt and tan slacks. It should be obvious in a sea of grays and browns and blacks, but my eyes were not catching on anything bright aside from the few flowers that poked through the concrete sidewalk. I wiped a sweaty palm on my dress and began to move through the crowd, eyes flicking back and forth for my target. A small older woman passed by my right, quickly followed by a woman with two small children, all of whom looked me up and down as much as I did them. Two men in suits walked past my left, and I could feel their eyes linger on me even as they went down the sidewalk. Could they tell? No, the KGB didn't employ women, especially not blonde women in bright pink dresses. Still, I didn't turn around. There was no point in checking. If they knew who I was, then I would be caught. If they didn't, then I would continue my mission. Simple as that. At that moment, I spotted him, up ahead, walking calmly towards me. I recognized the shirt immediately, and it took all my energy not to speed up my pace to meet him. Instead, I kept my walk steady, and as we got near each other, I took a fake sip of my coffee. As I raised my left hand to take the sip, my right hand reached out and brushed his. I could feel the small film canister press into my palm, and a thrill shot down my spine. This was it. This was the moment I had trained for. I slipped the canister up my sleeve and moved the suitcase to my other hand while I tossed the empty coffee cup into the trash can and took a sharp right turn around the edge of the building where a car was waiting for me to arrive. I climbed into the passenger seat and placed my suitcase at my feet and settled in for a moment. Evening, John. I said as I leaned my head back. John leaned over and kissed my cheek. Good to see you too, dear, he said as we drove away from the curb. I hope your travel was uneventful. Did you know they serve champagne on planes? I didn't know that, and I was thrilled when the stewardess offered me a glass. As I spoke, I pulled off my long blonde wig, revealing a mass of short, dark curls. We weren't certain if they could hear us, but it didn't hurt to have a mundane conversation anyway. That's nice, dear, John replied. I bet airplane champagne is better than what we have here on the ground. I unbuttoned the front of my dress, much to John's amusement, 
and revealed a man's shirt underneath, much to his disappointment. Well, you know me, I prefer a nice red, but when in Rome, or <laughs> Moscow, I suppose, <laughs> I said as I pulled out a pair of slacks from the suitcase and slipped them on as gracefully as I could, rounding out the look with a pair of dress shoes. Anyway, I'm tired, and I'm going to close my eyes for a bit, darling, I said as our car took two quick right turns. At that moment, I knew I had five seconds to execute my mission. I pulled out a small box from the suitcase and put it on the seat next to me. Then I tucked the film canister into my shirt pocket, gave John a wink, opened the door, and rolled out. I flicked out a small rod and watched it expand into a full cane, then I kicked a pebble into my shoe and placed a hat on my head. I looked back and saw that John had pulled open the cord on the box in the car, revealing a large cutout of a person in the front seat. Two people had rounded the corner in our car, and now two people appeared to be driving away. As the surveillance car tailing us rounded the corner, they saw an old man hunched over and limping along the road with his cane, and they saw two people driving away in our car. They followed our car and ignored me completely. Perfect. I was a free agent now, and I knew I needed to use that time wisely. I limped my way down the road. Damn, that pebble hurt but I made it to the large tree at the corner of the nearest intersection. There at the base of the tree was the object I was looking for, and I let out a long sigh. The agents really did like to use the term dead drop literally. I poked at the taxidermied rat with my cane a few times. Yep, this was it. No one but me would be crazy enough to pick up a dead rat on the side of the road. The rat was split down the stomach and hollowed out to be a container. Inside was a small file rolled up tightly. I took the file out and replaced it with the film canister and tucked the roll into my pocket. I dropped the rat, turned around, and walked away. As I limped my way back to the main thoroughfare, I felt a rush of satisfaction flood through me. I'd just completed a data transfer, put on a new disguise, lost my tail, and su successfully delivered a dead drop as a new agent in Moscow. I looked down at the document that was inside the rat and the first line left a small grin on my face. Congrats, Agent Smith. Now let the work begin. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> oh! Mm -hmm. Okay. Because this is a podcast where we're only voices, everyone needs to know that Tracy diligently did not look at me while no, she was not reading. Once, not once. I could see you at the corner of my eye and I couldn't. I couldn't look at you because you were just ooing and awing and grabbing your face and dropping your jaw and <laughs> Oh my gosh. Pretty much everything that I talked about in that story were real tactics. That's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into them because it's so interesting. According to NPR to escape KGB surveillance, Tony Mendez developed one technique he called disguise on the run. He had started as a businessman in a raincoat and a briefcase, said John Mendez. He turned the raincoat inside out and it became a pink woman's overcoat. He pulled up his pant legs, revealing black stockings. He put on a mask and the wig of an elderly woman and the briefcase sprouted wheels. In just 45 seconds, he ended up as an old woman in a pink coat wearing a shawl with gray hair, coming out pushing a grocery cart. And it was just kind of an amazing transformation, Jonna said. 
Tony Mendez worked with some of Hollywood's top makeup artists to refine his methods of deception and disguise. Okay, am I remembering correctly? I might be so off, but I feel like I heard John Mendez talk about this in <laughs> a YouTube video. That it's really helpful to go from someone who is in a bold outfit to someone who's in a blah outfit or a blah outfit to a bold outfit because mm -hmm. one is just calling so much attention and they wouldn't expect that. Yeah, it's that. Uh, the, the big thing is they want to take anything that's identifiable about you and swap it. So for you, someone would say you are you have blonde, curly hair. So they're going to give you short, dark hair. That's straight. Right. Um, changing your height and your body type, I imagine, is... Changing your height. Jonna says you can't force someone to change those things about them. You have to physically do it. So put a pebble in the shoe so they walk differently. That's so cool! Mm -hmm. You put a pebble in the shoe to make them walk differently. They have um, plumpers that you can put in your lips to change the profile of your face. They have fake palettes for the roof of your mouth to take an impression of the roof of your mouth and then create a new roof of your mouth so you talk differently they have teeth they can put in oh it gets so interesting the stuff they could do my day is being made i know right now this was so much fun to research oh my god so the goal of disguise according to jonna and tony is to be as uninteresting as possible you want to be the person who gets on the elevator and gets off and no one remembers you were there that is a design goal of the Disguise Labs, according to Jonna Mendez. But it's not just about the face. It's also how you operate in a public space. Jonna Mendez says, quote, Americans are oblivious to what it is that reveals them to a foreign agent. In terms of behaviors, there are a lot of small actions that give us away. The way we eat. Europeans use the fork in their left hand, and it doesn't travel back and forth to their right whereas Americans are constantly putting their knives down and moving their utensils back and forth. The way Americans smoke. We put the cigarette between our first two fingers, while Europeans tend to hold the cigarette between the thumb and pointer finger. When Americans stand, they tend to support themselves on one foot or the other, leaning into a particular hip, while in Europe they stand up straight with the weight equally distributed on both feet. End quote. <laughs> I've been thinking about this nonstop since I read that quote and did the research. I was standing today realizing I was leaning on my left hip. I am also left-handed, so I actually don't have the fork travel. I do eat like a European in that sense, but that's just coincidence. My parents taught me to eat like that when I was younger. Really? They're like, why are you switching hands? Yeah, why are you switching hands? It's not very – it's not good economy of motion. Stop it. <laughs> And actually, like, I really like it. It was fun game as a kid, and now it's useful. Oh, my God. But Megara from Hercules ruined my posture. I'm always sinking into one hip. I'm like, mm, mm -hmm. hello, Herc. Like, mm hmm hip <laughs> <laughs> Mendez has gone on to talk about disguise techniques the CIA use in great detail online. As you mentioned, you've watched some of her videos as well as I have. She clarifies that this means the CIA no longer uses these techniques, thus enabling her to talk about them after decades of silence. Let's get into my favorite part. This is the technology that they don't use anymore. But keep in mind, this was used in like the 70s and 80s, which just makes me wonder what the hell we have now. Well, we have different problems now. Digital everything. True. True. 
I don't mean to be that guy, but like I love a film camera and a typewriter. Like, give me oh, the know. difficult real life media capture devices. It's incredible. I don't have it in here to talk about, but I remember in one of her videos talking about how they could fit basically an entire eight and a half by eight or eight and a half by eleven document on like a grain of rice, basically, and you would stick it into this little machine and then you could read the whole thing. <sighs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So let's talk about the SRR-100. This was a device used to tell if you were being actively spied upon by bugs in the walls. A small device went into your ear, and the CIA would create a new fake inner ear for you to put on top of the device, so it looked like you had nothing in your ears. They would paint it specifically, mold it and paint it specifically to look like your inner ear. Then a neck ring went around the back of your neck with induction technology leading to a receiver tuned into the KGB surveillance frequencies. This would allow the agent to listen into the frequency while appearing completely unaware. While out, if the agent turned right or left, they could hear their surveillance communicating with the KGB that they were moving right or left. This allowed the agents to be aware of what their surveillance could see, and if the agent could hear that they were being tailed, they knew not to do any operational work that day and just remain completely uninteresting that day. Mm-hmm. Rowan's face is just her jaws dropped. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I just love it so much. Me too. I was geeking out during all this. It was so hard to pick only a few pieces of technology to talk about. Mm. Mm. <laughs> the next one I think is probably the coolest. It's so cool. Okay. I'm I'm finding that hard to believe, but okay. <laughs> oh, get ready. These are the semi-animated masks or SAMs. They were used to help agents lose their surveillance if needed. It was a mask that would allow you to apply different disguise materials all at once, such as a mask with a dark beard and a wig attached to the silicon sculpt of a large nose. An agent could get in the car with their true face and somewhere along the way put on their new face, take two right turns, lose their tail for five seconds, and then step out of the car a totally different person. Thus, when the KGB agent saw an old Russian man with a beard walking towards them instead of a young, blonde American agent, they would drive right past him and continue following the car they were tailing, like in my story. Okay, but is this something that only stands up at a glance? No. They had different <laughs> levels of it. They had some where you could sit face to face and have coffee with someone and they wouldn't know the difference. They would mold it specifically to your face. Right. So you could only add things. You couldn't take it away. And you can make women look like men, but you basically cannot make men look like women. Okay, yeah. That was one thing they always said. Um, they had it – so they had they had different levels. So some would be used for quick discard, not close up. And then they had ones where you could sit face-to-face -face directly with someone. They genuinely would have no idea it wasn't your true face. It just depended on what you need. But no matter what level it was, you needed to be able to rip it off, tuck it under your arm, and carry on. And it needed to be put on without a mirror. Yeah, imagine having to discard a face. Yeah. When you can't throw it away, you need to have it with you. So it had to fold <laughs> up, fit under your armpit, and you could take it out, put it on in five seconds without looking at a mirror, and know it looked flawless. Ooh. Yeah. So the trick, as I mentioned earlier, according to Jana, is to get the people writing about you to write down the wrong description. So if they met an older, gray-haired man with beard and glasses, then the agent's true face should be a young, clean-shaven, dark-haired man with no glasses. Mm -hmm. The CIA devoted more time and money to disguise than anywhere else in the world. 
they saw it as a form of body armor and as protection for their agents. So they started working with John Chambers, the makeup artist behind Planet of the Apes, on stunt double masks for their agents. Like I said, unlike the Hollywood version, these five-second masks, as they became known, had to crumble down to almost nothing. It needed to look perfect immediately as well. You had to be able to throw it on, no mirror, put it on the car, run out, trick KGB agents. They did this by molding the mask specifically to the agent's face, so it was guaranteed to fit immediately and effortlessly. And these masks were used often to get agents free of surveillance very quickly, and they were wildly successful. You can actually see some of them in the spy museum. And that means we've moved on beyond this technology and we're using something even more advanced. Ah! Isn't that crazy? Could you imagine being a retired spy and be like, oh, look, there's my other face in the museum. Yeah. They have Jonna's face. She was one of the first ones they tested it on. So if you scroll down, the pictures below show Jonna Mendez in her own five-second mask while speaking to President George H.W. Bush. During their meeting, he asked when Jonna would arrive for her part of the presentation. And that's when she took off her mask and revealed herself to be Jonna the whole time. Oh, my gosh. Okay, can I describe this so people Mm -hmm. know what they're looking at? So uh, you can see very easily what Jonna Mendez looks like now uh, because there's a lot of contemporary media of her. But her real-life appearance, she's got closer cropped hair. Um, It's hard to tell in this picture, but I happen to know she has, like, somewhat finer features, like a little more Mm -hmm. narrow nose, you know. And I would say she... In in this particular outfit that's like a suit and a blouse, she just looks like, you know, an unassuming woman. Mm-hmm. And then when this face is on, which in this photo, like it, 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 it's just her, it's just a face, but it's a poofier, a little bit longer black hair that I imagine works great at covering up some of the seams. Mm-hmm. And... You know, the nose is just a little bit wider. The lips are just a little bit fuller. The cheeks are just a a little bit more rounded. And I think that that probably allows her to be able to move inside the mask while changing the shape of her. And she's Mm -hmm. just got this incredulous expression on that shows how well this mask moves. Right. Because that's not just a boring blah expression. Like, she's looking at him. She's got, like, her mouth quirked to one side. Like, head tilted down, looking up through... Her lashes, like, interested in what he's saying. Yeah, she's got some kind of look going on. And when the mask taken off, again, these will always be on our Instagram, the eye holes are such a small cutout that this mask goes right... Right up into your eye, like, against your eye. Right up into your eyeball. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can also look up, there's other masks you can see. They have a really famous one with a dark beard and sunglasses and dark hair. But I wanted to show Jonna's because they're finally able to release these photos. And the fact that she was talking to the president and while in the presentation, he stopped and said, where's Jonna? Why hasn't she shown up yet? I would guess that talking to people who believe themselves to be very important helps the disguise work. Mm -hmm. Because people of a certain status, I think they just take a little bit more for granted. You know, they're they're they, so much of their brain space is being aware of themselves. Mm-hmm. They're a main character. They don't have to. They don't have to analyze you. You're just a supporting character. You're just a background person. Like, oh, okay, cool. You have black hair, and that's your face. And I'm over here yeah. doing this. 
And so I think probably the more important the person you interact with, the more you're like, cool, my disguises were golden. <laughs> I could see that as a really good way to think about it. Apparently, when she took off the mask, he was just like overjoyed. He thought it was the coolest thing ever. I bet he giggled. I bet he giggled. I would have. Are you kidding? I would have screamed. I'm trying not to scream in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk forever and ever and ever, but I've got two more I want to go over. One is a mission that I had to include because it involves a dog. The dog is okay. happy and safe and healthy. Okay. It was called the Lying Doggo. <laughs> <laughs> this was an operation where they had a couple who was working in Moscow, but before they left America to go to Moscow, they told them to buy, to buy a very large, very particular looking dog. Then they had a CIA wig maker make a covering that looked like that dog. So when it was placed in the backseat of the car, it looked like a sleeping dog. The couple created a routine where they would leave the embassy compound with their actual dog, so the man at the gate got used to seeing them. Sometimes the dog would be awake, sometimes it would be asleep. It was just them going out of the embassy with their dog. Then, when the CIA needed to move people, they would have the agent crouch in the backseat under the dog cover, and the couple would drive them out of the embassy under the disguise of a sleeping dog. That is so clever. You got Malcolm the big, fluffy future dog specifically to do this, didn't you? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny the facts of that statement. Right. It's technology <laughs> that's still in use. You can't tell me about it. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Some of these are so clever and so obvious of like, oh, that makes complete sense. Right. If you see the dog up and barking enough or asleep enough, you're like, oh, cute dog. Done. It's so boring. Also, I thought doggo was a more modern internet term. That's so cool. I know. <laughs> I don't know if that's what she calls it now, but I saw it listed as the lying doggo. <laughs> the last one I want to talk about is something I mentioned in my story, which oh, so interesting. It is called a jack-in-the-box or jib. And this is a device that when triggered would pop up a dummy person. <laughs> this was used when an officer would leave the car, such as when they would jump out with a semi-automated mask on. And the problem is that you would have two people in the car, and then when one suddenly leaves, that's very suspicious. So that's where the jib comes in. Once the agent leaves the car in disguise, the second agent activates the jib, and it appears to the KGB officers as if there are two people in the car, and then the agent who left is free to do their mission. They had tiny little pop-up people. <laughs> I bet that one's not in use because cameras are so much sharper now. Yeah. That's so cool. Me at the coffee shop waiting for my friends. Just a pop-up person. Uh, a pop make it look person. like I'm now by myself. Yeah, don't talk to me. I got my pop-up person. Exactly. Ugh, Tracy, this is so cool. Yeah, I could go on and on and on, but at some point we need to cut ourselves off. So if you are interested in learning more about the Moscow Rules, the CIA Cold War tactics, you can either read The Moscow Rules by Antonio and Jonah Mendez or look up all of the amazing videos that Jonna has done online, um, pretty much all of which are in our show notes. Right. I think that your topic was especially cool because you hit all the things that, well, you and I like so much from, like, James Bond movies, from in, like, Flint. You know, it's that fun technology that just captures the imagination. It's so cool. It feels like magic. Yes, that was what I wanted to hit on of you need to be really boring to be a spy, but there's so much cool stuff to make you seem so uninteresting. Yeah. Well, Trace, 
We're main characters. We'll never have it. So thank you for covering it. <laughs> thank you for letting me. Thank you for getting as excited as I was the whole time I was researching this. My Moscow rule books is just filled with notes and highlights, which I know some people don't like to mark up books, but um, I think books meant to be loved. Honestly, mm-hmm. shut up. <laughs> if- <laughs> Tracy and I will truly die on this hill. <laughs> it is truly the hill I'll die on. Oh, my God. Well, I have a book if you're not going to love it. So that was what I used to go through and kind of pick and choose what I would talk about today. Because there's, I think, 12, 11 or 12 total Moscow rules. But I wanted to – we would be here for literally three hours if I talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. So I had to dial it back. Oh, no. We'll have to do another espionage episode. Oh, oh no. We definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> That's a willing and fable promise. Mm-hmm. It's a promise from us to you, whether you want it or not. <laughs> All right. Tracy, tell me something good. Okay. My something good. <laughs> it's a weird thing for me to talk about, but I got to see your mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not weird. <laughs> it's just funny where it's like, oh, my something good. I got to spend time with my mom. No, I got to spend time with your mom. So your mom came over to my house to drop off the nicest gift, a book from you on Chinese mythology Gifts for my dog and my cat, <laughs> and the greatest salt and pepper shakers I've <laughs> ever seen in my entire life. They are like blown glass, colorful bats. Okay. So it started this way. <laughs> I was at a used bookstore with my mom in Vermont. It's one of our favorites. I found that book. I love used mythology books because A, they're always pennies. It had really and- cool notes in it. Yes. Well, that's why mm-hmm. I bought it for you. Because yeah. sometimes old mythology books can be dated uh, in their perspective. But I feel like at this point, we're really good at taking what we need and leaving the rest. Mm-hmm. But then when I saw it had notes in it, mm-hmm. I instant buy. So I was like, okay, mom, can you drop this off for Tracy? And my mom was like, absolutely, I can because I have this present for her. Oh, and God. she was very not sure if you were going to like it. I, I I almost teared up. I like so, and she's so cute because she came in and immediately sat on the ground and was playing with all the animals. And I like tackled her on the ground and was like tearing up. They are my favorite. They oh, I love them so much. I got the most awesome texts. I don't know where I was, but I couldn't look at my phone. And I got a text from my mom going, "I'm going to Tracy's." And I and I was like, "Cool, what?" And then I got texts from you of you and my mom. It was very fun. I made her take a selfie with me. It was so nice. (laughs) And she was so happy to meet Malcolm and Lola and everyone. I loved being on the sidelines. It it was just amazing because your mom is – brings out the just big – big old nerd in me like we were talking about museum wax and renaissance wax to put on tim's broadsword so that we could bring a shine out in the the dagger that i crafted oh she has some of that for you by the way (laughs) (laughs) so it's just so fun jamie still won't stop talking about the artwork that they were talking about your mom getting and the different artists that she has in the house and it's just so fun to get to see her in person again after the whole quarantine she's also training up one of the horses for you to go on a ride I'm so excited. Guys, in case you were wondering how close Tracy and I are. <laughs> We've known each other many a year. So that's my something good. It was just like the best part of my week, getting to see her and hug her and chat with her and hang out and have her meet the animals. I'm so glad. That's mm-hmm. ugh, that's so refreshing. I, I love it when my humans are with my humans. Mm-hmm. So now it's your turn to tell me something good. 
Yeah, my something good this week is it's on the opposite end of the excitement spectrum, I think. <laughs> um, but listen, I allowed myself to take a nap the other day, which is something I have a very hard time doing. I'm just not good at it. Mm-hmm. I feel about the nap that I took, which had no deadline. I was like, I can nap mm-hmm. and for 10 years. I don't care. When I tell you... <laughs> this nap refreshed me like conquistadors thought the fountain of youth would for them <laughs> that's the best when you have a good nap where it was like the right amount of time you wake up you feel refreshed you don't feel guilty it was soothing and lovely oh i'm so happy for you and i woke up <laughs> what is it about naps where you wake up and like your whole bed is imprinted on your cheek i don't know it- but i get it every time it was just the hardest sleep that I've ever mm-hmm. taken. Um, so I just wanted to make that my something good because I feel like some of the good things that we really enjoy, just they don't sound that special, but boy, did it feel special. And I was challenged recently where I was like, oh, I want to stop napping and be more productive. And I was challenged that naps can be productive and that yeah, it's they're- important to take care of yourself. And so I took that to heart. Very much so. Oh, and Tracy, I sent you and our mod Seb that video about the American Air Force folks were taught how to like go to sleep really quickly using this muscle relaxing visualization mm-hmm. thing. I tried it for my nap and it worked. I'm still trying it. I think I'm trying to get the you relax all the muscles in your face. Ooh, that's on and then after like it's tough. It's tough. So I'm working on it. I'm practicing it every night. Well, it's part of our spy craft. We have to figure mm-hmm. out how to relax the different muscles so that we can throw off the KGB officers. Yes. Yes, we definitely need to practice our spy craft. All right. Thanks for joining us for this history episode. We were really excited to work on it. It was really nice to talk about morally gray people. It was fun. Mm-hmm. It was super fun. So thank you all so much for joining us. And remember... Stories grow with the telling, so if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a spy. And we'll see you soon, okay? <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. (laughs) 